And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is the second day of January, 2023. Time passes quick when you're having fun. And I want to let you know that the show is now going to be heard on Amazon, as well as a number of other uh, locations. I'll be putting a list of them up. You know, the, the January 2nd has been an interesting date throughout history. In uh, the year 69 AD, the Roman legions in Germania Superior refused to swear loyalty to Galba. They rebelled and proclaimed Vitellius is emperor. The uh, 1791, I'm sorry, 1788, the state of Georgia becomes the fourth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. Been ignoring it ever since, but they ratified it. Um, 1791, the Big Bottom Massacre in the Ohio country, North America, uh, making marking the beginning of the Northwest Indian War. And then the uh, 1920, we got the the second Palmer raid. Now these raids were series of raids conducted in November 1919 and January 1920 by the U.S. Department of Justice under the administration of Rudolph Wilson. They were going to capture and arrest suspected socialists, especially anarchists and communists, and deport them from the U.S. Uh, they particularly targeted. Italian immigrants and Eastern European Jewish immigrants with leftist uh, ties with particular focus on uh, Italian anarchists and labor activists. Um, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer um, led the raids and uh, arrested about 3,000. And although 556 foreign citizens were deported, his efforts were largely frustrated by officials at the Department of Labor, which had the authority for deportations, objected to how he did things. Now, on this day in 1920 was the second Palmer raid, resulted in 6,000 suspected communists being arrested and uh, held without trial. Uh, 1941, World War II, the Cardiff Blitz severely damages the cathedral at Cardiff, Wales. 1942, the FBI obtained the conviction of 33 members of a German spy ring headed by Fritz Jobert Duca uh, Duquesne in the largest espionage case in U.S. history. 1942, Manila is captured by Japanese forces which let them control the Philippines. 1949, Luis Munoz uh, Marin is inaugurated as the first democratically elected governor of Puerto Rico. And now, our wonderful leftist in uh, Congress want Puerto Rico to be basically cut loose. They can become a state or it can go its own way. Then, uh, 1955, following the assassination of the Panamanian president, Jose Antonio Ramon Cantera, uh, his deputy, Jose Ramon Guz uh, Guizado, takes power. 
but he's deposed after his involvement and Cantera's death is discovered. 1959 saw Lunar 1, the first spacecraft to reach the vicinity of the moon and orbit the sun, is launched by the uh, Soviet Union. My understanding is they used our technology, but they put their own twist on it. Nice day, 1963, in the Vietnam War, the Viet Cong wins its first major victory at the Battle of Op Bac. This day in 1967, Ronald Reagan is sworn in as governor of California. That was before it became its own republic. Uh, 1974, President Nixon signed a bill lowering the maximum U.S. speed limit to 55 in order to conserve gasoline during an OPEC embargo. The uh, 1975, the federal rules of evidence are approved by the Congress. And 2004, Stardust successfully flies past the Comet Wild 2, collecting samples that are returned to Earth. You know, the fascinating thing about uh, looking at history, it's been said, whoa, what was that? Those that... Uh, don't understand history are doomed to repeat it and certainly we are doing it as hard as we can go uh, uh, 77 members of uh, Congress are now being looked at for violating the uh, SALT Act which is um, insider trading but of course it's okay because after all they're wonderful people I hear that uh, said uh, many times to cover up many crimes. Wonderful people. You just have to understand they're above the law. They're, they're better than you. Well, I also wanted to make everyone aware that my books are now going to be available. They've been available on Amazon, but now we're going to uh, have all our books up uh, as e-books. When all is said and done, we'll have a little over a hundred books up. You know, one of the things that we wrote about, um, and uh, actually it's early 2015, Billy the Kid, <coughs> who, uh, excuse me, you know, a lot of folks know the name, but they don't know that much about him. Uh, May come as a shock, everybody, but he was actually born in New York City. He's been called an outlaw, a murderer, a knight of the six gun. The um, what most people know about him came from Hollywood. For over 21 years, the name Billy the Kid struck fear in the hearts of those in power in Texas and Mexico and parts of Mexico itself. In more modern times, he's basically been uh, viewed as a legend and a mystery. The man who became known and many say died under the name of Billy the Kid wasn't born with that name. Actually, he had a number of names during his short life. And there's a great deal of mystery about who he actually was and where he was born. 
Now, as well as can be done, we're going to try to lift that veil of mystery and once and for all discover who was Billy the Kid. You know, first there's the question of when and where he was actually born. First thorough account of his life was actually written by none other than Pat Garrett. He wrote uh, The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. He was the lone man who allegedly killed Billy. I want to be noted that The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid is a biography and first-hand written account by Pat Garrett, who was sheriff of Lincoln County, New Mexico. And he wrote it in collaboration with a ghostwriter named Marshall Ashman Ash Upson. Uh, Upson was a longtime resident of Lincoln County and was thoroughly familiar with most of the characters, but it was... It's come to light that there were a number of embellishments in his book that actually didn't um, track, shall we say, with actual history. Now, according to Pat Garrett's book, Billy the Kid was also known as William H. Bonney, born in New York City, November 23, 1859. But even this simple statement has a number of problems. First, Billy the Kid's real name, according to numerous sources, was actually Henley McCarty. Said by some to have been born in an Irish neighborhood in New York City. Also said to have been born in New York State, Indiana, Missouri, Ohio, Illinois, New Mexico, and even County Limerick, Ireland. There was a book by uh, Robert Utley titled Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life. It came out in 1989. And it uh, helped confuse things. His parentage is also something of a mystery. It's known his mother was named uh, Catherine McCarty. Though whether or not that was her maiden name or her married name is also a mystery. His father may well have been Michael McCarty, William McCarty, or even Edward McCarty, though history is actually silent in regard to uh, his father's information. Most writers on the subject believe that uh, Catherine was born in 1829 in Ireland, though part of that certainly seems to be based on her own obituary in 1874 that gave her age as 45. Whether or not, uh, whatever may have been the actual year of her birth, the passenger list on the ship Devonshire shows uh, she departed uh, Liverpool and arrived in New York. Uh, April 10th, 1846. Now, whether or not this Catherine was the same one that arrived on the Devonshire, it's known that she gave birth to at least two sons, Joseph, who was called Josie, who was born in either 1854, 55, or 56, and Henry, who was born in 1859, either November 23rd, November 20th, or maybe 7th, September 17th. You know, uh, Joseph was long outlived his brother. He certainly did not make things any clearer. In uh, the 1880 census, the year before Billy died, Joseph, the older brother, claimed to be only 17, which would mean he was born in 1863. In the 1885 census, Joseph gave his age as 21, which would mean he was born in 1864. Also gave his place of birth as New York City. In a 1920 census, Joseph gave his place of birth as Indiana and reported his age as 64, which would place his date of birth in 1855. However, when Joseph died in 1930 at the purported age of 76, 
This would mean he was born in 1854. Clearly, there seems to have been some confusion as to birth dates, even among the family members. As to the father of Joseph and Henry, there was one clue. After the Civil War, Catherine moved her small family to Marion County, Indiana. One of the country's uh, first addresses in this, one of the family's first addresses in this new city was 385 North New Jersey in Indianapolis. Now, it should be noted that there's some question as to why she may have moved to Indianapolis with two small boys, as the city was predominantly a Confederate prison camp at the time. There were uh, more than 5,000 incorporated, incarcerated Confederates in the city, confined in what was called Camp Morton. But the end of the war, the camp was closed, of course. And by the time the Indianapolis City Directive was compiled in 1868, the family is living at 199 Northeast Street. However, the, what's the most interesting is that when she was interviewed by the compilers of the directory, she told them she was the widow of Michael McCarty. Of course, there's no information about Michael in any other reference we could find. Unfortunately, this wasn't enough information to allow any of the many researchers to actually track down the actual father of Henry and Josie. But one thing was certain was that while living in Indianapolis, Catherine met the man who was to uh, be her next husband, William Henry Harrison Anthrum. He was an interesting individual, born in 1842 in Huntsville, Indiana, the son of Levi Anthrum, a merchant and the proprietor of a hotel named the Railroad House, located in Anderson, Indiana. And even though he was 13 years Catherine's junior, the couple seemed to get along very well. According to available records, William Anthrum enlisted for a three-month hitch in the U.S. Army in June of 1862 when he was only 22 years old. Mustered in as a private in I Company of the 54th Regiment of the Indiana Volunteers. Now, Company I was directed to march to Indianapolis, where they were to serve as guards for the prison camp at Camp Morton. October 1862, Anthrum was mustered out of service, but instead of going back home, he stayed in Indianapolis, getting an apartment at 58 uh, Cherry Street. Got a, drive as a, got a job as a driver and a clerk at the Merchants Union Express Company. It was located only a few blocks from the McCarty home. Records don't make clear how Anthony and Catherine McCarty met, though he may have been when he delivered a package to the McCarty address. But in 1871, when Anthony made a sworn statement about his relationship, he stated he'd known Catherine Anthony for the past six years. That would seem to mean that they met in 1865 or 66. Fifty years later in El Paso, Texas, Anthony applied to the U.S. Bureau of Pensions for annuity based on his brief service in the American Civil War. At the time, he stated he'd, she'd previously been married to a man named McCarty who had died in New York and who hadn't served in the military. End of the war, and with the closing of Count Morton, Indianapolis seemed to have lost most of its appeal for Catherine, and she became worried about the rough and ready atmosphere in the city and its effect on her boys. She and uncle as they called him, Billy Anthrum, uh, entered into a lengthy courtship. Though they weren't married yet, they decided to, uh, there were greener pastures to be had further west. So packing everything into a wagon, the four left for the unknown. Wichita, Kansas, a new raw town just beginning at the junction of the Arkansas River and the Little Arkansas River.
It was the summer of 1870 when Catherine, her sons, and uncle Billy Anthem arrived in Kansas. The Anthem family was now living on the rail frontier. It should be noted, though, they lived together as a family for a number of years. According to records, Catherine McCarty and William Anthem didn't marry until March 1st, 1873, and they did this in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Signing as witnesses were her son, Henry, and Joseph McCarty. It should also be noted that though he's best remembered for the incidents before and during the Lincoln County War in New Mexico, this was only one aspect of the career and adventures of the man known as Billy the Kid. Now, when the family arrived in Wichita, Kansas, there was a need to find shelter for her two boys. After all, while the adults might be able to rough it, so to speak, two adolescents do need some stability in their life. So it's believed that they took temporary quarters at the Empire House, Wichita's lone hotel that opened in May of 1870 at the corner of 3rd and Lane Streets. Of course, though, they couldn't undertake that expense forever. It was a good temporary measure. Wichita was a growing railroad town through which literally millions of cattle passed as they were shipped north on the rails for butchering. For a growing boy like Henry McCarty, this would have been an engrossing education in both the uh, money to be made as well as the carnage involved in the cattle business. And as with most towns in the early days, Wichita was a rough and tumble place. Surrounded by an ocean of grass, it had long been the abode of Indians, buffalo hunters, and fur traders. And uh, though a wide open prairie, as far as the eye could see, it was a veritable highway for those who wandered the eastern part of what, uh, excuse me, the western part of what became the United States. In fact, just 10 years before the arrival of the Anthony McCarty party in October of 1860, an Osage hunting party murdered John Ross, one of the first white settlers in the area. Clearly, this wasn't a place for the faint of heart and frankly not a place for young children, but this is where Catherine William chose uh, to have their first joint home. Now, during the Civil War, there had been a trading post established in the area where Wichita was to grow in later years. It's also where Jesse Chisholm, half-breed Cherokee and a member of the Wichita tribe, settled for a number of years. He marked out a route across the range that eventually became a choice route for cowboys, bringing herds of longhorns from Texas to the markets of Kansas. This route first became known as Chisholm's Trail, and then later the Chisholm Trail. In fact, the newspapers of the 1870... Um, made much of Chisholm, his explorations, and the creation of the famed Chisholm Trail. Unfortunately, Henry was never able to meet the brave explorer. Chisholm died on the North Fork of the Canadian River in 1868 after eating bear grease contaminated with by a melted brass kettle. And though Henry McCarty would never meet this hero, he would certainly dream about actually going on adventures of his own, similar to those uh, undertaken by Chisholm. When looking at the boy who became Billy the Kid, it has to be remembered his early years were spent in a town where the influences were anything but those we would expect a normal child to be exposed to. Instead of the average citizen, every day Henry was exposed to soldiers, both northern as well as southern, bullwhackers, would-be ranchers, sodbusters, renegade Indians, wolfers, buffalo hunters, criminals on the run, scouts, cattle drovers, gunfighters, mountain men, and all kinds of riffraff. No question the 
later events showed that uh, Henry McCarty was just a product of the times in his upbringing. You know, life was cheap. Retribution for wrongdoing was swift, brutal, and dispensed by both law officers as well as uh, the wronged. Life was cheap, as I say, and death was a daily acquaintance for Henry and the rest of the community. Vigilantes were very common as official law enforcement was often uh, either unable or to handle the problems or else part of the problem themselves. When government fails to protect the rights of the citizens, often citizens take the law into their own hands. And certainly Henry did this a number of times before he died or disappeared, depending on which story you believe. Added to the human dregs he often associated with, the conditions and the amenities of the settlement were certainly sparse. For example, because of the scarcity of wood and the cost of coal, dried buffalo and cattle manure, which was often uh, known as chips, served as fuel. Cottonwood sprouts pulled from the riverbanks replaced the trees destroyed by the many prairie fires. Winters were brutal, summers were hot, and in the spring, tornadoes were a constant threat. For hundreds of years, massive buffalo herds had crossed the grassy plains in their tens of thousands. Supporting a way of life that um, had supported native tribes as well as many men and women who chose to live on their own on the extreme edge of civilization. But by the time Catherine and her family moved to Kansas, the extermination of these massive herds was at its height and a way of life was ending. Transition periods are always unusually violent, as the Anthony McCarty family found out. You know, in final analysis, Wichita was a filthy hellhole populated by some of the most violent men and women on the western frontier. However, there were a few attempts to bring some semblance of civilization. First attempts to raise the level of civilization was to bring education for the children. Billy entered a new phase of his life as he now became a student, though not in the way you might think. Of course, the first school in Wichita was opened in 1869. Wasn't exactly something to write home about. Conducting in an abandoned army dugout made of cottonwood logs and sod, it was damp and, at a minimum, very close quarters. Another issue was the studies were boring, and just outside the schoolhouse were Indian teepees and the promise of great adventure. How can a teacher compete with that? And though he had exposure to education, it would appear that the future Billy the Kid didn't take advantage of his opportunities. There's no records of, that either of the uh, brothers attended school. Rather, it would seem that the young Billy McCarty had an education in street smarts. However, even though the future Billy the Kid did not exactly run with the upper echelon of the community, he certainly wasn't overlooked. 1881, Colonel Marshall Murdoch, the Founding editor of the Wichita Weekly Eagle wrote a feature story about Billy the Kid, stating that uh, many of the early settlers of Wichita remember him as a street gammon in the days of Longhorns. That was uh, a story in the Wichita Weekly Eagle, dated August 18, 1881. And while the McCarty boys are making their way through learning to survive on the streets of this rough and ready community, their mother was making her way in a different segment of the population. And while jobs for women weren't readily available in this time in our country's history, with the help of her friend William Antrim, she set out to make a place for herself and her boys in the growing community. 
Unfortunately, unless a woman was wealthy or had a working husband, there were really few choices available for the fairer sex. Records show that even many of the so-called respectable women, finding they weren't able to support themselves and their families, took jobs in the dance halls or brothels in the community. However, Catherine McCarty had other ideas on how to create a future for her family. Rather than take the easy way to open to most women on the frontier, Captain McCarty chose to walk a road less traveled by the fairer sex during her day. She decided to become a major part of the community. On July 21, 1870, she was one of 124 inhabitants of the community and the only woman to sign a petition that was presented to Judge Reuben Riggs asking that Wichita be incorporated. Following this usual action, against all customs, she also attended the first meeting of the city board of trustees the next day. She was making herself a woman to be reckoned with within the small community. It's not known what Catherine may have done to support her family back east, but in Wichita, she showed that uh, she was made of real entrepreneur stuff. First opened a hand laundry in a two-story building located on Main Street. Also established a home for her family on the second floor of the building. In keeping with the propriety of the era, since she and Antrim were not formally married, he filed for a quarter section of land six miles northwest of town. Moved into a frame home he built himself and began to work his land August 1st, 1870. It would seem he was a man with a plan. Using funds from her steadily growing laundry business, Catherine Mantram began to buy other parcels of real estate in and around the growing community. According to city records, their joint acquisitions indicate extensive holdings in what was then the very center of the business district of the growing community. It seemed that Billy the Kid's mother had some money in spite of the many stories of his destitute beginnings. In addition to her real estate holdings, Catherine McCarty also opened a larger business called the the city laundry that attracted a steady clientele almost from the moment the doors were open. In fact, in the very first edition of the Wichita Tribune, March 15, 1871, her laundry establishment was praised in the most glowing of terms. It's one of the few and certainly best-known laundries in the area. Such public acknowledgement uh, ensured greater revenues. Widow McCarty was uh, moving up in the business community as well as the... Uh, the community itself. March 25th, 1871, Catherine McCarty traveled to Augusta, the county seat of Butler County, and filed claim on a quarter section of land in Sedgwick County, adjacent to Antrim's land. Deposition that was filed in support of her claim revealed that she had been living on the land since March 4th, 1871. Also revealed that with Antrim's help, she and her boys had built a cabin on the property. Little Catherine McCarty was now a Landowner sub-substance. Probably many reasons she moved her small family outside the environs of Wichita, not the least of which was the large amount of saloons that uh, graced the streets of the growing city. Certainly she wanted to distance her sons from the temptations to be found in the increasing dangerous town. Now she had moved to Wichita to build a home, a better life for herself and a home for her two boys. However, in any newly formed frontier community such as Wichita, there are going to be bad influences, some merely, some merely irritating and some very deadly. Certainly, the 
Many instances of frontier justice took place in the town streets were a danger to a growing boy who ran these deadly streets. Danger was not just to their physical well-being, but to their mental well-being as well. As an example of danger, July 27, 1870, just six days after Catherine signed the petition seeking to incorporate Wichita, there was a news of a cold-blooded murder that took place only a short distance away from the McCarty Laundry. Jesse Van Devoort, a saloon keeper, had been killed in a land dispute with George Murray. After the killing, Murray hightailed it out of town, but was captured and brought back by Allison Piley, a friend of Van Devoort. Certainly figures such as Plowley and his guns got a dashing figure to a young boy, and then McCarty was there when Plowley brought in his prisoner. Murray was brought to trial, but in the end of his preliminary hearing, he escaped again and took off with the Indian nations. Allison Plowley once again set out after his prey, and when the two met in the Indian nations, Plowley shot and killed Murray, burying him in an unmarked grave deep in the Indian nations. Brought uh, Murray's horse and gun back to Wichita, where they were prominently displayed for all to see. Such events ingrained the idea of frontier justice deeply in the minds of impressionable youth, such as the young Henry McCarty. You know, shortly after the, the Murray killing, there was big news from neighboring Butler County. Their citizens had grown so tired of a growing problem with the theft of horses that a band of vigilantes shot and killed four suspected thieves. Then to make it perfectly clear, Butler County would no longer put up with horse thieves. The vigilantes tracked down four more horse thieves and hung them from a tree along the Walnut River. Though the establishment... The established authorities took out warrants regarding the murders of the eight men. There were never any arrests of any of the vigilantes for these crimes. Clearly, there were those who thought that frontier justice was the right of any aggrieved party. It was a lesson that uh, young Henry McCarty learned very well. You know, Catherine had also learned they never knew who might be a crook or a thief. February 28, 1871, a fierce gun battle broke out down the street from her laundry. It resulted in the death of a rather prominent citizen of the growing community. The dead man was the owner of the Harris House, a prominent hotel in town named John Ledford, known to many folks in town as Handsome Jack. Ledford was known for being wild and reckless, and at one time was reported the head of a band of uh, counterfeiters, horse thieves and desperados that operated in Kansas and the Indian Territory almost as if the violence was coming to her doorstep. I mean, what was a mother to do? On the face of it, the killing of Ledford was legal. But looking at the entire scene makes it appear that, in fact, the law had been subverted to allow a deputy U.S. marshal to extract some vengeance. An arrest warrant had been issued for Ledford's arrest on charges of plundering a government wagon train and killing several Teamsters. Warrant was served by Army Scout Lee Stewart and Deputy U.S. Marshal Jack Bridges was discovered after the fact that there was no basis for the issuance of the warrant. It had long been bad blood between the Ledford and Bridges, and it came out, and it was reported in the press, that the, the warrant was issued to allow Bridges to commit legal murder. Bridges and a detail of soldiers arrived at Ledford's house and attempted to serve the warrant. In the ensuing shootout, Bridges was wounded in the arm, and Ledford was fatally shot and later died. Young Henry McCarty, again saw the law used for settling a grudge and there was no punishment for the one who subverted the law. How could he not 
have a jaundiced view of the law growing up in these surroundings. It should be noted that though warrants were issued the same day for the arrest of Bridges, Stewart, and one other unnamed individual, nothing ever came of these warrants. Once again, the law had been successfully used as a weapon of revenge with little or no retribution against those who so wrongly used the law. Bridges eventually went back to being a deputy U.S. marshal with no attention to this little escapade. A young Henry McCarty saw once again crime paid and paid handsomely. In other words, might makes right and the good guys win. As if the dangers in her own community weren't enough to unsettle her mind, Catherine had other serious concerns in her life. Financially, she was doing well. The laundry was doing a steady business. Her cash flow was satisfying on the way to becoming a very wealthy woman. In the evening, she spent her time educating her two sons after they finished their daily chores. Life was good for a change, but Catherine was still uneasy. Gone to great lengths to try to protect the boys from the surrounding violence at the frontier. However, now she had the additional f factor of her worsening illness to consider. By the beginning of 1871, she had become very much aware that she was not in the best of health. Great fear was that would happen to her sons if she should die. Could she trust Antrim to take care of them? Public health wasn't very advanced on the frontier. To, I know meant stretch of the imagination with daily conditions, anything approaching sanitary. In many cases, lost sewage could be found in the streets and the drinking water was polluted. Medical care was rudimentary at best, and along the frontier could be found diseases such as typhoid and cholera and diphtheria and pneumonia, pleurisy, and the ever-present smallpox. In almost every frontier community could be found these and many other diseases. Many times those who had the diseases were simply carriers, but periodically there were some very serious outbreaks. Wichita was certainly no exception. Conditions were very bad in respect to public health. In fact, according to the Wichita Eagle, pedestrians on Main Market and Water Street of the growing community was surrounded by what the paper described as a quintessence of putrefaction. Catherine's laundry and, frontier, uh, and former home were to be found in this area. No question she was in a prime location to be infected with any and all these illnesses. Of course, she may have brought her killer with her when she moved to Wichita, but wherever, whenever she became infected, in the end, there was no doubt she had tuberculosis. Her days were most certainly numbered. Where her diagnosis amounted to a death sentence, she needed to prepare for what would happen to her sons after her fast-approaching death. In this effort, she was aided by Antrim, who apparently had decided they were soulmates. Preparation for her pending death, she began to sell off her properties to, in Wichita on June 16, 1871. For her two orphan sons, money in the bank were buried near the house was better than ownership of land. They'd be too young to do anything with first sale was her improved section of land, though Antrim bought another section adjacent to hers the next day. Maybe this was a hedge against the future when the couple maybe envisioned Catherine being well enough to return. Whatever may have been their thoughts at the time of this purchase, by the end of the summer they'd disposed of all their property and left town. For more than a year and a half, there was no sign of Catherine McCarty, her sons, or Antrim. During that year and a half, the trail of the future Billy the Kid and his family completely vanished from history. No matter how diligent researchers have combed the records of the past, 
No sign of the alien Catherine O'Carty, her sons, or her constant companion, William Anther. Many researchers believe the foursome went to Denver, the largest city in the Colorado Territory. Certainly this may well be true, as Catherine's son, Joseph McCarty, made mention of this in an interview he gave to the Denver Post in 1928. In that year, Joseph McCarty, then a penniless old man living back in Denver, told a reporter that in 1871 he'd first arrived in Denver with his father, William Anthem, who was a Wells Fargo Express agent. Unfortunate for history that Joseph didn't go into more detail about his first arrival in Denver, and the reporter didn't inquire any further. Of course, there's further support for the idea that Catherine moved her family to Denver. According to an El Paso Times story uh, in uh, 1923, Billy the Kid sometimes discussed living in Denver with a friend, Frank Coe, one of McCarty's closest friends. Um, actually spoke to J. Edgar Haley about Billy having told Coe he and his family had lived in Denver for a short time. As for Antrim working for Wells Fargo, he did have experience working as an ex for an express company, as well, that was his job when he first met Catherine in Indianapolis. It also made sense that the alien Catherine McCarty would go to Denver as it was considered a place where the, those in her ailment could live comfortably and possibly get some help. Uh, Denver was also a thriving commercial hub brought about the discovery of gold in 1858 at the confluence of the South Platte River and a Cherry Creek. Though by the 1870s, not everybody was seeking gold in Denver. Thousands of people stricken with tuberculosis had come to the Rocky Mountains in quest of a cure in the dry mountain air. It's confirmed that on March 1st, 1873, William Anthem and the McCarty family were in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as that's the day Anthem married Catherine McCarty in the First Presbyterian Church. Service was performed by the Reverend D.F. McFarland, and Henry McCarty and his brother Joseph stood in as witnesses. Now, a short time after formalizing their long-running relationship, William Anthem and his new family turned their eyes west once again, moving to the mining town of Silver City, New Mexico. For decades, this sleepy area had been mined by Spaniard and American alike until a major strike took place in 1870. There may have been some hope that the New Mexican climate might help Catherine with, her, with her, her illness, but it appeared that William Anthem wanted to try his hand at prospecting, and this seemed as good a place as any. So establishing his false family in a large cabin near what was known as the Big Ditch, William Billy Anthem worked at odd jobs and as a prospector, and Catherine never wanted to miss an opportunity, took in boarders. As for the McCarty or Anthem boys, they settled into the life of Silver City, even attending school for a period. Many uh, later made mention of the fact that Billy seemed to be rather well-educated for the time. In fact, uh, Mary Richards, one of Billy's teachers, told her niece that Billy, or she knew him as Henry, was quick to learn and always anxious to help out around the school. She described him as a scrawny little fellow, but reported he could write with either hand, possessed an unusual amount of physical dexterity, and was artistically inclined. The, um, however, this rather peaceful period in the life of Billy the Kid wasn't the last. In spite of the move to New Mexico in an effort to help Catherine overcome her tuberculosis, she became weaker and weaker. Finally, spending the last four months of her life bedridden, 
September 16, 1874, Catherine McCarty Anthrum died. The funeral was held in the Anthrum cabin, and her body was buried in the Silver City Cemetery. Certainly, Catherine never ex probably expected Billy Anthrum to raise her boys at the cabin in which she died, but shortly after her burial, the three were boarding the home of Richard Knight, a Silver City butcher. Billy Antrim wasn't what could be called a father. He exercised very little supervision over the two growing boys. Concentrating on his prospecting efforts, Antrim was gone for months at a time with the two boys that pretty much defend for themselves. One of Henry McCarty Antrim's best friends during this period was Tony Connor, Miss Sarah Knight's younger brother. Tony described Henry as one of the best boys in town, slender, undersized, and girlish looking. During this period, Henry McCarty became very fond of music. He and some other boys formed a minstrel troupe. It entertained audiences at Morell's Opera House. His fellow entertainers later commented Henry Antrim was head man in the show. In fact, the rest of his life, he had loved to sing and dance. Another pastime of young Henry McCarty Antrim was reading. According to Tony Connor, as soon as his chores were finished, Henry would be sprawled somewhere reading a book. Books soon gave way to dime novels and the Police Gazette. Many believe this lighter reading may have filled his young mind with the desire to have his own adventures. Of course, being unsupervised at such a young age was bound to lead to trouble. According to Sheriff Harvey Whitehall, Henry's first misstep was the theft of several pounds of butter from a local rancher, which he sold to a local merchant. Even though his guilt was established based on his promises of good behavior, he was released. According to Lewis Abraham, another of young Henry Antrim, uh, Henry McCarty Antrim's friends, his real problem was he fell into the wrong company. In this instance, it appears that he got into trouble as a result of hero worship. The icon that Henry followed was a local man named George Schaefer, known to many as Sombrero Jack. George Schaefer was something of a drunk who used to get falling down drunk every Saturday night. Always friendly to Henry, who used to follow George around and emulate him. Sombrero Jack liked to steal, and so Henry followed the leader, and he stole as well. Though it wasn't a particularly profitable activity at first. About a year after his mother's death, Sabrero Jack and his gang of one decided to rob the local Chinese laundry. At Sabrero Jack's urging, Henry hid the booty, which was a bundle of clothes in the rooming house where Henry was boarding. The landlady, Sarah Brown, discovered the clothing and turned Henry over to the sheriff who put him in jail. Once again, the sheriff planned to simply scare Henry as the crime was really not that serious. He also believed that Henry hadn't been involved in the actual stealing of the clothes, merely in the hiding of them. He really didn't want to put the young man into a cell. With this in mind, and due to Henry's age and his demeanor, the sheriff let Henry have the run of the place in the corridor right outside the cells. The sheriff had to step out for half an hour and simply locked Henry in the corridor. When he came back and opened the holding area, Henry was gone. He climbed up the chimney and escaped over the roof. According to the story that appeared in the Grant County Herald, Henry McCarty was arrested on Thursday and committed to jail to await the actions of the grand jury on the charge of stealing clothes from Charlie Sun and Sam Chung, Celestial's Sans Q, Sans Jawsticks, escaped from prison yesterday through the chimney.
believe Henry was simply the tool of Sombrero Jack, who done the actual stealing while Henry done the hiding. Jack skipped out and disappeared. With this escape, called daring and resourceful by many, Henry McCarty took the first step down the outlaw trail that would bring him to what many believe was his death at the hands of Pat Garrett. So we're going to follow the trail of the kid and see if that's actually what did take place. And on the Old West, to ride the Alhu Trail is a, a, a morphism uh, meaning to take up the life of a bandit. Certainly with 15-year-old Henry McCarty entering, escaped from the Silver City Jail, he was headed down the Alhu Trail, whether he wanted to or not. While the crime for which he was arrested was minor, breaking out of jail was something else. Next 22 months in the life of Henry McCarty was now going by the name of Kid Antrim or lost in the midst of time. Most researchers refer to Pat Garrett's biography of Billy the Kid for information on this time period. It's certain he was in Bonita near Camp Grant, Arizona on the 17th day of August in 1877 when he shot and killed Frank Cahill. Local newspaper did a full write-up on the incident which clearly stated the killer was Billy the Kid. And just how many men Billy the Kid killed over his lifetime is also uncertain. He uh, once said he killed 21 men, one for every year of his life. Another individual estimated the actual total was more like nine, four on his own and five with the aid of others. And just how many men Billy the Kid killed is, at the end of the day, as uncertain as most other things about him. Certainly other Western bad men are said to have killed many more than that. Yet William Bonney, at various times he also used the surname Anthem and McCarty, is better remembered today than Harden and other killers. Maybe because he appeared to be such an unlikely killer. Blue-eyed, smooth-cheeked, and unusual friendly, Billy seemed to have been a decent young man who was dragged into the life of crime by circumstances beyond his control. So it seems to have been the case for his first killing. Having fled from his home in New Mexico after being jailed for a theft, he may actually not have committed. Billy is said to become a itinerant ranch hand and sheep herder in Arizona. 1877, he was hired on as a teamster at the Camp Grant Army Post, where he attracted the enmity of a burly civilian blacksmith by the name of Frank Wendy Cahill. Maybe because Billy was well-liked by others in the camp, Cahill enjoyed demeaning this scrawny youngster and never missed an opportunity to intimidate or harass him. On that fateful day in 1877, Cahill was enjoying his favorite sport, harassing somebody smaller than himself, which he apparently went too far when he called Billy a pimp. Billy responded by calling Cahill a son of a bitch, and the big blacksmith jumped him and easily threw him to the ground. Pinned to the floor by the stronger man, Billy apparently panicked, pulled his pistol, and shot Cahill, who died the next day. According to one witness, Billy had no choice. He had to use his equalizer. However, the rough laws of the West might have found Billy guilty of unjustified murder because Cahill had not pulled his own gun. His huge fists were his weapons of choice. In fact, a coroner's jury was convened It found that the shooting was criminal and, just, and unjustifiable and that the guilty part of uh, Henry Antrim, alias the kid. During imprisonment, 
Billy returned to New Mexico, where he soon became involved in the bloody Lincoln County War. In the next four years, he became a practiced and cold-blooded killer, increasingly infatuated with his own public image as an unstoppable outlaw. Until Sheriff Pat Garrett is said to have ended Billy's bloody career by killing him July 14, 1881. But even that is uncertain. While well, little has been written about some of Billy's escapades during the missing 22 months, one of the most memorable and actual important to his future took place in a small Texas town of San Elizario, Texas. San Elizario was established sometime before 1760 as the civilian settlement of Hacienda de los Tiburcos, Tiburcios. 1789, the Spaniards established a fort called Presidio de San Elizario that played a prominent role in the Spanish activities in the area. The town that grew up around it uh, took the name San Elizario, which is a corruption of San El Cierro, Spanish for St. Elzear. St. Elzear of Sabran is the Roman Catholic patron saint of soldiers. San Elizario was El Paso County's original county seat and the location of the first county jail. One of the traits most admired by those who knew Billy the Kid was his steadfast loyalty to his friends was this loyalty that led him to a little-known but very important adventure in San Elizario. During his missing years, Billy spent some time in Sonora with a well-known gambler by the name of Laquites Segura. Billy's knowledge of Spanish and his skill with cards marked him as a first-class gambler and a gentleman. He was accepted in all the best gambling establishments and by the finest families in the region. According to Pat Garrett in the autobiography he, uh, the biography he wrote of Billy, uh, a Monte dealer by the name of Jose Martinez had persistently bullied and insulted Billy to the point of even refusing to pay him money he had fairly won. Whenever Billy would enter the club room, Martinez would pull out a gun, lay it on the table, and begin a heated tirade against gringos in general, and Billy specifically finding his behavior insulting and very tiring, Billy and Segura saddled their horses, settled their affairs in the plaza, and returned to the gambling establishment. Leaving Segura to watch the horses, Billy went to the club room. As he expected, Martinez began a tirade of insults, his hand on the pistol to lay on the table. Billy's pistol was in his holster. Billy addressed Martinez, saying, Jose, do you fight as bravely with that pistol as you do with your mouth? At that point, Martinez raised his pistol from where it lay as Billy drew his. The two fired at the same time. Martinez was hit in the eye and was dead before he hit the ground. Billy was nicked on the right ear. Before he even holstered his gun, Billy turned and raced for the horses, and Billy and Segura set a course for the border. Well, a party of some 20 Mexicans gave chase, a chase that lasted over 10 days. They eventually found the horses Billy and Segura had ridden out of Sonora, but fresh horses were easy to obtain by handsome young men such as Billy and Segura. Posse eventually gave up the chase and returned to Sonora. Family of Martinez offered a very large reward for the apprehension and return of Billy and a smaller reward for the capture of Segura, but they were never able to bring the two young men back to Sonora for a trial. Crossing the border, the two young men went their own ways, and each of them enjoyed numerous adventures before coming back into each other's company. Now, Pat Garrett is the primary source for the next story about Billy's adventures. Fall of 1876, Segura was arrested in San Elizario for what was described as a lawless act. 
It's never been specifically said what that act might be, but it was considered serious enough that he was sentenced to be hung. He'd been locked up in a jail in San Rosario, which at the time was the county seat, and nobody had ever escaped from that jail. Well, there was a lot of prejudice against Segura and with threats of mob violence, in fact, with discussions of saving the citizens at time and expense of a trial and just hanging. Well, by promises of a very rich reward, Segura hired a very intelligent young boy and sent him up to Rio Grande in search of Billy the Kid. Segura figured if anybody could help him be his old friend. Two had been a recent contact, as Segura had a, so Segura had a fair idea where Billy might be. After a long and diligent search, the messenger found Billy at a ranch six miles north of Mesilla on the western side of the Rio Grande. This put the kid in a precarious situation from where he was located. It was 81 miles to the jail in San Lazario, and that was if he took the most direct route. Unfortunately, he'd be required to take a circuitous route in order to avoid being spotted. So he had to go more than 81 miles. About 6 p.m. on the evening he got the word, Billy mounted his favorite horse and set out for San Elizario, telling the young man to wait on him. He planned to bring, uh, be, planned on being in San Elizario by midnight. Boy, I was skeptical, but Billy assured him his horse could do it. So to avoid passing through the sea, Billy went down the west bank of the river to the little plaza of San Barino, some 18 miles away closest ford that he felt safe using. So urging a horse into the uh, rushing river, horse and rider struggled for some 30 minutes to reach the far bank. When they did, Billy discovered they had gone downstream about 500 yards. Once across the Rio Grande, Billy kept his horse at a gallop to reach Franklin, Texas. For 10 minutes, Billy enjoyed the Bounty of Bendal Saloon, which is actually where the Camino Real Hotel stands in El Paso. 1015, and Billy covered 56 miles on his quest to reach San Elizario, only another 25 miles to go. Had one drink at the saloon, fed and watered his horse, and went back into the saddle. It's believed that Billy and his horse did reach San Elizario before the stroke of midnight. It was only a few minutes past midnight when one of the Mexican guards inside the San Elizario jail was aroused from a fitful sleep by the sound of somebody hammering on the door. The guard demanded to know who was there, and the voice said it was a Texas Ranger with two American prisoners. Obligingly, the guard opened the door, and there stood Billy the Kid. As the two Converse, Billy stuck his pistol into the jailer's side and told him that one sound of an alarm would be the signal for the jailer's death. Firmly convinced if he resisted, he'd die. The guard gave Billy his gun and his keys. Billy, the jailer led the way into the room where the girl was being held. The second guard found himself looking down the barrel of Billy's gun and decided to cooperate. To help of Segura, the two guards were shackled together, fastened to a post, gagged, and the prison doors uh, locked from the inside, uh, from the outside. They threw the keys on the roof. Running Segura on a raiding horse, the two left the sleeping town of San Rosario to sleep soundly until dawn. Crossed the Rio Grande once again in a little more than an hour they were sleeping in a ranch owned by a Mexican friend. Well, here's the thing. When Billy the Kid was killed, or allegedly killed, 
the man that signed the document that said that it was Billy the Kid in the grave was actually the father of Makarades Segura, the man that Billy had rescued. According to information from a number of sources, Billy had uh, a young lady he was seeing, and she had become pregnant and gave birth to his son. Well, not wanting to face retribution and with the help of Pat Garrett, Billy, his intended, and the son escaped. Pat killed a member of Billy's um, gang, if you will, who favored Billy. And when Pat went there to confront him, as sheriff. He took with him the only two deputies who didn't know what Billy looked like. In that darkened room, which was a man's bedroom, Billy and his friend walked in. Billy didn't know who was there, and he said, Kienis, Pat Garrett's supposed to, in the dark, have shot Billy in the heart. What actually happened is he shot his friend, hit Billy in the head, put him under the bed, and went outside to get help. So according to a lot of sources, Billy actually died many, many, in 1934, I think it was, in, uh, let me confirm that date. Well, Pat and a number of folks actually helped Billy disappear. And there's many, many uh, tales from history that actually are not true. This is one of them. On that note, we've come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll talk more about Stories that are strange and unusual. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.